We're going to have our Bible reading now, which is from the Gospel of John. It's John chapter 5. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. For many, uh, many years, um, my wife Debs and I have had a poem uh, framed and on the wall in, in our home. Uh, it was a poem that King George VI um, had used in his Christmas broadcast uh, back in 1939, just after the outbreak of the Second World War. Many of you, I'm sure, will know it, but for those who don't, Um, or for those who maybe have have forgotten, allow me just to read part of it now, because it somehow seems uh, appropriate um, uh, to to our uh, time, to our situation, not just at a a sort of time of momentous national change, um, but also against that backdrop that that Michael was praying about, you know, so much national and, and international fear and turmoil. This is how that poem begins. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely 
into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put out your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than any known way. So I went forth and finding the hand of God trod gladly into the night. The poem continues, and I, I, if you, I'd encourage you to, to look it up and read it for yourselves. The poem was written by a person called Minnie Louise Haskins. But what I didn't know until this week was that it was King, George, King George's daughter, a certain Princess Elizabeth, who had found that poem and thrust it into her father's hands uh, before uh, he was, uh, or as he was thinking about what he was going to say at that anxious Christmas time. Right from her earliest days, it seems that she was quite a remarkable lady. And many tributes have been paid to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II over the last few days. Many have been excellent. And I'm sure, like me, you have found them uh, emotional, moving, um, informative, uh, sometimes uh, even funny, Uh, There is a wonderful anecdote doing the rounds at the moment of a former protection officer of hers. I don't know if you've seen that, Um, uh, but uh, he was with uh, Her Majesty in the Highlands uh, and um, uh, they came across a couple of American tourists who had no idea that they were uh, uh, talking to the Queen. And the exchange that goes on is just priceless, so do look it up um, later. It's, It's well worth watching. But it occurred to me on hearing and watching all of these heartfelt tributes that precious few of them, particularly um, in the mainstream media, dared to think through uh, what it was that made Elizabeth the kind of queen that she was. You see, you can talk about her being a rock to us, um, but if you don't ask who was her rock then you're kind of missing the point. You you, you can't actually talk about her extraordinary humility uh, and compassion and sense of uh, service without asking where, where do those things come from? And you can't talk about her unwavering constancy without asking who was her unwavering constant. And if you listen to the Queen's own words, and if you re-listen to them, you'll discover that she always came up with two answers, Prince Philip and God. Time and time again, that is who she mentions. Not only would she pay tribute to Prince Philip's support and his companionship and friendship, but she would also direct us to her faith in her living saviour. That's why I'm confident, as, as much as is humanly possible, that God saved the Queen. We've already heard, but uh, that great American evangelist, Billy Graham, he tells the story uh, in his autobiography of the time that he met the Queen at Windsor. This is uh, where, where I came across this information. In conversation with her afterwards, he preached to her, and in conversations with her, with her afterwards, he admitted that he had been unsure on which passage to preach. And he said, um, I almost preached on John 5. 
Upon which he recounts that the Queen's eyes lit up. She became very animated and she enthusiastically responded, I wish you had. That is my favourite part of scripture. Well, that's my favourite story in scripture. Well, if that story is true, and I've no reason to doubt that, it, that it's not, I couldn't think of a, a sort of a more appropriate part of Scripture, actually, to reflect on uh, this morning uh, than one that actually obviously meant uh, so much. And one that we have the opportunity this morning to ask why. Why? What was it about this part of Scripture that Charles just read for us that meant so much? to the Queen. So please, um, if you would reopen your Bibles, if if you've got them uh, with you, to John chapter 5. If you need a Bible, and there's there's some in the pews, uh, in the chairs around you, uh, 1068, page 1068 will get you to John chapter 5. While you're doing that, I'm going to go ahead and pray, because it's really important uh, that what I say here is faithful to what's in God's word, and that uh, you hear from God and not from me this morning. So let me pray. Father, we want to thank you for our Queen again, and thank you for her love of your word, and we thank you for this part um, of your word, which apparently meant so much to her. And so now as we spend some time listening and thinking about it again, please would you speak to us, each one of us, uh, not just through these words, but by your spirit deep into our hearts. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John, uh, John chapter 5. Um, uh, this is a passage, I think, that uh, shows us three things. Uh, it shows us uh, what we are saved from, who we are saved by, and what we are saved for. Three things. If God saved the Queen, what was she saved from? Who was she saved by? What was she saved for? If God is to save us, what will he save us from? How will he do it and what will it be for? These are the questions actually that get right to the heart of the Christian faith, right to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And time and time again, the Bible tells us that there is something to be saved uh, from, tells us that it is God who, who, who saves by a gift of grace and not through what we do, and that we are saved to live differently for a reason. The Queen's favourite part of scripture then is a case in point. Let's get uh, right um, into it um, and take a look at verse 1, which says, um, Sometime later, Jesus went into Jerusalem, went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. So the setting here is Jerusalem. Uh, this is where we are. Up until this point, the religious leaders that had been uh, having some sort of encounters with Jesus had had some reservations, um, but it hadn't sort of turned particularly nasty. However, from here on in, these reservations actually turned to outright conflict. And at the center of their problem is with Jesus is actually what we heard at the end of the passage. So if you, if you just uh, take, cast your eyes down to the end of the passage to verse 18, which says that, uh, this is verse 18, Jesus was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's their bone of contention. They considered Jesus to be blasphemous. He was just a man, they said, you know, and yet he was claiming to be so much more. Of course, that, is, uh, that was the contention then, 
and it is the contention today. That a real man called Jesus lived and died in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago is not contested by any serious historian. But what is contested and what everyone has to decide for themselves is whether or not this man was who he claimed to be. God himself in human form. And this account helps us to decide. Verse 2, we read that um, in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, there's a pool. And in other words, where this story is taking place, it's a real place. um, And this is a real encounter. This isn't a story that Jesus told like his parables that was just stories to um, illustrate other things. This is a real uh, and, and factual encounter. And it's an encounter that takes place, according to verse 9, on the Sabbath, which presents a bit of a problem. You see, healing was viewed as work, making people well, and work was not allowed, not permitted on the Sabbath. Neither, apparently, was carrying your bed mat. don't know if you were aware of that, but that wasn't permitted on the Sabbath either. That one wasn't direct from God, by the way. That was one of those man-made extra sort of laws that the religious leaders had just sort of thrown into the mix. But can you see here how there is controversy brewing? There is trouble over both keeping the law and the very identity of of Jesus. Who is he? So let's turn now to these, these three points. Firstly, we see what we are saved from is actually um, a desperate situation. I wonder if you, if you sense that as Charles read through the first few verses, one through to seven. It's actually uh, one of Jesus' followers, a chap called John, who is, who is writing this bit. He is setting up a desperately sad and depressing scene for us to think about. It's one that we, who are used to the National Health Service and the care that that gives us from the cradle through to the grave, it's one that we may fail to to, to understand properly. One where the sick, specifically the lame, the blind, the paralyzed, are abandoned. They're left to their own devices to try and heal themselves. It's very sad. How are they supposed to do that? How are they supposed to to heal themselves well by being the first into this special pool, apparently? Now, that might sound silly to us in in this this day and age, but apparently they believe that when the water started bubbling up, the pool had healing properties. And the sooner that you got into the pool, the greater your chance of actually being healed um, by it. And amongst this group of disabled people, Jesus identifies one, one who has been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. And quite why Jesus picks out this man, we're not explicitly told. But from what we are told, we know that here is a man who cannot physically sort himself out. As he waits for the waters to be stirred, he can't get in there quickly enough. Take a look at verse 7. He says, I've no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So it seems that the nature of his his disability slows him, him down. And there are always others who get in there first. And worse, no one has thought to help him. 
quite a self-centered environment to be in. And it's actually a picture of uh, sadness, I think, and loneliness and isolation. I don't know if any of you can relate to that this morning. Maybe you have feelings of, of sadness and, and being alone and being isolated. Burn deep down inside the very core of your being. Maybe you have a sense of fear or of being lost, if not physically, certainly emotionally, certainly spiritually. And actually the death of someone familiar to us and who we love very much can often bring such um, realizations to the surface. But look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 6. It's a question that he asked then. I believe he's still asking it to anyone who will listen today as well. He says this. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Now, we might be tempted to say, come on, Jesus, this isn't rocket science here, okay? The man is by the pool. Of course he wants to be made well. You know, do you really need to ask this question? But actually, it's a really insightful question. Do you notice how this man, who has been unable to move freely and independently for 38 years, do you notice how he responds? He doesn't answer directly he ducks the issue he doesn't say yes I want to, or no I don't he just, he just ducks the issue uh, he, he just complains in fact the, his answer is sufficiently vague and we could say possibly evasive um, as well enough to make us question whether he really wanted to be healed see it's just possible it's just possible that after nearly four decades This man had become comfortable with his desperate plight. He preferred not to face the challenge of a a, a normal, healthy life. And so his ability to get into the pool quickly was less to do with his speed and more to do with his heart and his desire. Perhaps, perhaps he didn't really want to be healed. Evidence from that time suggests that disabled people would have a source of income through their begging. That was, was how they had any income, really. And it's not impossible that after all those years, this man had become so set in his ways that he didn't really want to embrace the, the, the effort required to change, to change from what was familiar to him, even though it would have brought so many benefits, even though it would have brought, been such a positive transformation. Well, we don't know for sure. But what is clear is that both his situation and his outlook was hopeless. He was without hope. And again, maybe that is something that you can relate to this morning. Maybe you feel without hope, without true, lasting hope in all sorts of ways. Maybe that's physically. Maybe it's emotionally. Maybe it's relationally. Maybe, yes, it's even spiritually. And Jesus' question remains as relevant as ever. Do you want to get well? Or are you quite happy to hold on to hurts and habits and attitudes that have become so ingrained for you as a way of life 
that you feel change would just be too difficult to adjust to? Do you want to get well? Jesus asks. Or will you carry on ignoring God? Denying him. Rejecting him. Because actually it's just easier to go with the flow and you're just too busy to to sort out honestly deep down what you really think and believe about him and eternity. This matters, folks. It really matters. It matters because ultimately Jesus is not offering us healing from a physical Uh, from physical and emotional turmoil only. He is offering us rescue from something far worse. Let's take a look at verse 14. And again, Jesus' words here, I think, are as relevant today as they were when he uttered them all those years ago. He says to the man, stop sinning, or something worse will happen to you. Well, you might be here this morning or you might be watching uh, with us online and you may take issue with that warning. What could possibly be worse than a lifetime of physical disability? What could possibly be worse than a lifetime of, je- of, of emotional and, and, uh, and, and inner turmoil? How can Jesus offer life and then seem to threaten something else? But folks, it's not a threat. Oh no, it's a warning. It's a warning of a spiritual truth. And if we fail to respond appropriately to Jesus in this life, if we fail to accept his his free gift of salvation, then something worse will happen. And that something worse is not a lifetime of something worse. It is an eternity of something worse, of separation and pain apart from God. Friends, it doesn't matter how hopeless you may feel your situation is at the moment. God can reach and address your deepest needs. He can address those things that seem impossible to you, that you have long since given up any hope of change about. And he can reorientate your life and give you a brand new perspective. And more importantly than all of that, he can also save you from that something worse. How? How does he do that? That's the next part we see in the Queen's favourite Bible story because we see who we are saved by and how. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. This is the first, uh, this is verse 8 and then the first half of verse 9 if you're following through with me. Jesus said to him, he said to the man, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he did that. He walked. Who is it that saves? It's Jesus. He's the one who speaks here. He is the one who shows the interest. He is the one who shows the care. He is the one with the power to transform people's lives. And the same man who makes that invitation to you to be made well is the very one who can and will do something about it. And look at the nature of his help here too. I have three things as well here, just just very briefly. It's all Jesus, it's all a gift, and it's complete. It's total. It's all Jesus, it's all a gift, and it is complete. I love this. I I think this is incredible. This This is basically the good news, folks. 
Who are we saved by? Jesus. We could say it's all Jesus, it's only Jesus. He takes the initiative, it's his initiative. He speaks, they're his words. Um, He works, it's his work. There's power here, it's his power. It's all Jesus, firstly. Secondly, it's a gift. It's a gift. As as we said, we don't know how actually, uh, or what actually deep down the man wanted in response to uh, Jesus' question. But Jesus goes ahead and he heals him anyway. (laughs) It's marvellous. It's a gift. It's grace. The disabled man didn't earn it through what he did. He didn't earn it through how he responded. He didn't earn it through what he did, through how he prayed. No, Jesus loved him and he healed him out of grace as a gift. It's all Jesus. It's all a gift. Thirdly, it's total. The the physical work Jesus does is complete here. Those muscles that had been wasting away for 38 years are immediately and totally restored. Just at his command. At his voice, the man picks up his mat and goes and walks. I mean, can you imagine this? (laughs) If you had been there, if you had witnessed this yourself, could you have believed your eyes at the complete and utter total transformation of this this chap? What is, so encourage, uh, what is so encouraging about this, I think, is, is that it means that no matter how miserable or how uh, difficult somebody's life has been, no matter how lame your spiritual life uh, has felt for so long, no matter how long you have been limping with a certain issue, Jesus can do something about it. He can change. He can heal. He can transform. And I praise him for that. And what we have in this miracle is, is essentially a physical illustration. Jesus is, 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 is acting out a physical in illustration of a greater spiritual reality. And it is one that would not have been lost on any self-respecting Jewish leader, or indeed any self-respecting Jew, for that matter. Why? Well, because in their scriptures... Uh, which make up the first part of of our scriptures, of our Bible, by the way, that's what we call the Old Testament, in their scriptures was a 700-year-old prophecy. Uh, And that 700-year-old prophecy looked forward to a time when God uh, would, would rescue his people. And that prophecy is recorded by a chap called Isaiah, and it says this, The lame will leap like a deer. The lame will leap like a deer. Do you see what's going on here? (laughs) By selecting the invalid from this group of lame and blind and paralyzed people, Jesus is in effect, he's putting up this this big neon flashing sign (laughs) that says the time of God's spiritual rescue has come, folks. Oh, and by the way, I am the agent of that change. I am the agent of salvation. We are, res- we are saved, we are rescued from a, a desperate situation. We are saved by Jesus, totally and only by Jesus and by his grace. And then lastly, we see in this passage uh, what we are saved for. Verse 14 says uh, this. Later, Jesus found him, that's the, the man whom he had healed. He found him at the temple and said to him, See, You're well again. 
Stop sinning. Or something worse may happen to you. So Jesus says, firstly, see, you, you, you are well. You know, in other words, be grateful for what has happened to you. And he also says, stop sinning. In other words, something's got to change now. Something's got to change in your life. We use that word repent. That's all that word really repent means is to change and to go in a different direction. Be grateful and change your lives. In short, we are to live differently. We are saved to live differently. I think this is what our queen did so marvelously. She knew exactly what the Lord Jesus had done for her what he had saved her for. And she lived and modelled a changed life of gratitude, of grace, didn't she? Of mercy and compassion in response. That's what all these tributes have been telling us. She showed us how to love and to forgive, sometimes in quite remarkable ways. And to value every single member of society. Just like her saviour does. That's what all these, um, I think, tributes have been communicating to us. And you know, one of the wonderful things about the salvation that Jesus offers is that it's never forced. Jesus won't force this salvation on anyone. He leaves us with a choice then of how to respond. And some respond like the religious leaders and they choose to reject the offer and they choose to confront God. We kind of see this in verse 10. It's it's the Sabbath, they say, in verse 10. And the law forbids you to carry your mat. (laughs) Maybe it's just me, but this just seems pretty pathetic to me. This man's life has just been turned around, completely transformed. They should have staggered back, shouldn't they, in awe and praise. And even if they didn't know exactly how and why, they should have at least been asking, who, why, how? And yet all they can do is pull out their principal book and quote condemnation chapter and verse. You can't do that. And do you know what people still today reject and confront God? They argue with God. They take issue with him. If he really exists at all, how on earth could he allow? Dot, 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 dot. You fill in the blanks. Maybe you've got those questions yourself. Maybe you've heard them. If he really is God, how could he allow such suffering? How could he allow what's going on in Ukraine that we were praying for? How could he allow those those droughts in Africa and those floods in Pakistan? Is he really God? And they take issue. And yet they fail to realize the folly of the created arguing with the creator. The folly of those of us who only see in part and don't have the big picture arguing with the one who sees it all and knows it all. Some take issue and confront Others, like the lame man, actually ungratefully ignore God. I don't know if you picked up on that. In verse 12, he's asked, Who is this fellow who told you to pick, up, um, to pick it up, to pick up your mat and walk? And this man doesn't have a clue. <laughs> he doesn't have a clue who it is that's done this. 
Verse 13, the man, who he- the man who was healed had no idea who it was. How's that for gratitude? How's that for gratitude? I mean, we are told that Jesus slipped away quietly. But even, even uh, if that was the case, and he didn't have time to ask Jesus directly, surely he's going to be looking around and say, who was that? Tell me, who was that that's just done this to me? I want to know. But he doesn't. Oh, friends, be warned. You can respond to God with confrontation. You can respond to him with ungrateful ignorance and ingratitude. But the right response is to understand that you are saved for a lifetime now of living differently for a lifetime then, an eternity, I should say, of living with God. A lifetime of living differently, great, gratefully, obediently, serving the very one who created you, who knows you inside out, the moment that you were conceived in your mother's womb, right through to the moment that you're going to draw your last breath like our queen did this week. He knows it all. And he knows when you will meet him face to face and your life on this earth is complete. So friends, the Queen's favourite passage leaves us with a choice this morning. Will you reject or confront God's gift of Jesus, just like the Pharisees? Will you ungratefully ignore him, just like the healed man? Or will you accept his free gift of salvation, salvation from something far worse than any of us have ever experienced? any of us have ever experienced in this life. I think the truth behind the Queen's um, extraordinary success and her near universal respect lays in her faithful response to the Lord Jesus. She knew she was in need of salvation. She would have known that she wasn't perfect herself. She knew that she faced a desperate, eternal situation. She knew who could save her. She knew that it was Jesus. And she responded faithfully to him. With a lifetime of humble service to us. A testament that as best as she knew how, she wanted to be an advocate for him in our our country. God saved the queen. May God save the king. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask again uh, that you would be at work amongst us. Thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for this passage of your scripture. Thank you for what the Lord Jesus did and what we see of him um, in these verses. And so, Father, I pray now that you would give each one of us here, wherever we have been with you up until this point in our lives, the courage to keep stepping forward every single day, trusting you, wanting to live changed lives of obedience and gratitude to you. Knowing what we are saved for and living in hope of what will come for eternity. And so I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.